Greetings, friends. My name is Jessa McLean, and I'm here to provide you with some blueprints of disruption. This weekly podcast is dedicated to amplifying the work of activists, examining power structures, and sharing the success stories from the grassroots. Through these discussions, we hope to provide folks with the tools and the inspiration they need to start to dismantle capitalism, decolonize our spaces, and bring about the political revolution that we know we need. Okay, let's be clear. Right-wing figures are purposely generating a massive moral panic around the LGBT community. And at the moment, trans people and any display of gender nonconformity are in the crosshairs of those who would use this frenzy to feed their political aims. There are hundreds of anti-LGBTQ pieces of proposed legislation working their way through the United States courts, drafted by politicians who owe their power to harnessing hatred and scapegoating marginalized communities. Most of these bills are aimed at denying gender-affirming health care to trans youth, preventing them from competing in sports, and otherwise erasing their existence from public places, like schools. The most popular example might be Florida's Don't Say Gay Law passed last year, but that was far from isolated. Canada is no stranger to this either. These bigots have set their sights on our school boards, advocating for the same erasure, pushing harmful narratives, and even screaming obscenities at queer students during board meetings. York Region Catholic School Board, I'm looking at you. We also know that this September, there's planned protests outside of schools in Scarborough, Ontario. We've also got premiers who have voiced transphobic positions, particularly Daniel Smith. This leaves trans people and their families in those provinces fearful of what legislation might be in store for them. All of these high-profile positions have a real impact on the ground, on the lives of trans youth in particular. Now keep in mind that all of this is happening in an environment where trans people were already grappling with the reality that they are four times more likely to experience violence than cisgendered people. Statistics from the Mental Health Commission of Canada reported that one in three trans youth had attempted suicide. We simply cannot ignore what is happening here. Because the number of in-person protests and hate crimes against the LGBTQ community have soared. Bolstered by the false validation that they get from politicians and talking heads, right-wing bigots have been given a lot of leeway by authorities to continue this harassment of spaces such as drag time story hours. These events are usually at public libraries and they're designed to help show the diversity of gender expression that exists and help build acceptance around a more fluid understanding of what gender identity is. Rather than simply enjoying these events as they were intended, community members have been forced to defend them, to stand between raging transphobes and the families inside. Our next guests help organize this type of community defense, and we wanted to share just how and why they do it. Because in this class war, the ruling class are always set on dividing us. They try to force us to stand apart, fighting our own battles, too distracted or exhausted to attack the system itself. There are some naysayers who would have us believe that the left's job doesn't include defending marginalized communities, that this takes away from building the working class solidarity across all those arbitrary lines drawn around us. Those people couldn't be more wrong. It is critical that local groups mobilize in the way Peace Country Progressive Alliance has, the way anti-fascist, anti-fa groups have to combat those fascists head-on when needed. Trans people are part of the working class, and they need to feel the same solidarity that we proudly bring to the picket lines. Now, this resistance isn't just for us, though. The right and those who prop it up also need to see that we won't be sectioned off to fend for ourselves. We will fight back on behalf of our queer comrades. So let's hear from Susan and Will on just how they're holding the line in Grand Prairie, Alberta. Welcome to the both of you. Kindly introduce yourself to the audience. 
I'm uh, Susan Thompson. I'm born and raised in Alberta, maybe unfortunately. Um, I've been an activist off and on for many years now. And uh, lately, I primarily write content for digital organizing campaigns. And I am a member of the Peace Country Progressive Alliance, uh, writing content for our campaigns as well. Amazing. What about you, Will? Uh, yeah, I've been living in Alberta since 1997. So I was here for the Klein years. Um, I was a conservative until, well, studying theology, I became a leftist um, about five years ago. So, yeah, um, and I've been part of the Alliance since um, uh, since it started, and um, I've been really pleased to be with them. So, Will, you're relatively new to this side of the political spectrum. Interesting. We might get into that as we go through the interview, but obviously what brought you here uh, was your work with the Peace Country Progressive Alliance. Who wants to describe the Peace Country Progressive Alliance to folks who don't know? I'd say go ahead, Will, because I think you were there for the initial founding. Yes. Uh, we're a motley crew that met online from all over northern Alberta. Um, the Peace Country is basically northwest uh, of Edmonton, about uh, 400 kilometers northwest of Edmonton, and stretches way into northern BC. Um, many of the communities um, in the area are facing the same problems with uh, homophobia, transphobia, uh, various forms of racism, um, conspiracy theory um, becoming reality in the form of truck convoys. Um, and uh, uh, many of us were tired of being frustrated and feeling alone and reached out to one another online, seeing each other interacting on community, um, you know, Facebook um, things, uh, occurrences, events, we, and, and realizing that we weren't alone. And so from there, that was basically the, the inception of this was a number of us saw the reaction to a drag queen story time at the local library, and we saw the planned reaction by the right wing, and we said somebody has to do something. Um, and so I think it was about a couple weeks later that Susan joined our ranks um, as we were planning a response to this event. And so it wound up being about, I think we have a consistent like participation of about 10, maybe 12 people. Um, and, uh, we're, we're just a really motley sort of crew. We have, um, some NDP, um, you know, faithful, we have some anarchists. I myself am a Marxist. Um, and I had a feeling someone had slipped you some marks. <laughs> and, and, uh, it, it just was this, uh, beautiful realization that, um, there were many people who were like us and felt the same on the issue and that nothing was happening um, in response to what the right wing was openly planning. And so that was, I guess you could say, the straw that broke the camel's back was this planned event by uh, in, in, to protest a drag queen story time. And we, we were planning to defend that drag queen story time. Yeah, um, we deal with uh, Elliot McDavid, uh, who's fairly infamous in Canada at this point. He's based in Grand Prairie, and he and his group of convoyers did show up to that event. They pulled a fire alarm. Um, they scared the kids pretty badly, and it was a very unsafe situation for the defenders who were there. And I think um, that was a big wake-up call for all of us. So although we've organized primarily online, it's getting together in a physical confrontation, essentially. Um, with people who were there to spread bigotry, um, conspiracy theories about uh, the 2SLGBTQ community. Um, it, physically, it became, here's a group of defenders, here's this group of well-known and infamously aggressive convoyers. And it, would be, it was a very um, unsafe situation, but it also created a lot of solidarity because we realized, hey, we need to organize. We need to organize so that this doesn't become this unsafe again. We need to build our numbers. So although there is this core of maybe 10 to 12 people, and we have a Discord, obviously, um, where we plan actions, it's the fact that we have people who are willing to step up physically and actually get out into the community and um, stand up for what's right, um, protect 
uh, <laughs> you know, a very harmless reading of a story at the local library. And uh, that has in turn sparked an additional defense where we did outnumber the convoyers and we were able to keep it very safe through safety planning and nobody got hurt, nobody got threatened. There was no violence. We were able to handle the police. Um, we just really realized that we needed to have boots on the ground um, and it is a small community and we are able to come together and defend our community. And that's what we're doing. We're the ones who are willing to do that. You guys describe a really large geographical area and a small group of people doing, you know, the organizing part of it. How does that work? You know, how are you reaching people? Are This is and it crosses provincial lines. Is that right? So do you find yourself communicating in a large area? Or are you still expanding to fully cover peace country? Well, it's still a, a growing um, organization. Um, basically, the people who are mostly mostly active right now and uh, involved are the original people who helped with um, organizing those defenses. Um, and and I think the the thing that we were noticing was we saw many people in the community on community pages expressing, "Hey, that's not right. We don't like what we're seeing." And so then you just kind of slide into their DMs in a good way and say, hey, I noticed you don't like what's happening. Would you be interested in knowing how to be there um, in a safe way and, and participate in defending our community? If you approach it that way, people are very interested in, in the concept of community safety. And it's, and it's an intuitive thing, I think, that we realize that what keeps the community safe isn't cops, it's safe people on the streets. Um, and so if we can mobilize safe people to be on the streets when right-wingers are doing their crazy stuff, um, then we can create this atmosphere of safety and, um, and uh, uh, solidarity um, in a way that isn't necessarily confrontational in the in like the the right wing media always portrays the left as being these you know in your face confrontational type of people, but community defense isn't confrontational. It's um, it's just standing your ground in a calm manner, um, and and really employing you know the um, nonviolent. Um, approaches of protesting um, with a safety plan, because <laughs> we also are very aware that some of these people do plan um, and threaten violence. And so we have to be, the, the main organizers among us have to be very aware of like, what's our plan? Um, how will we approach this public space and participate safely in a manner that's going to make not just the community feel safe, but also us as participants. We need to have plans to keep ourselves safe at the same time. Yeah, I think geographically it's very centered in Grand Prairie. Uh, Grand Prairie is the largest city in the area, right? So I'm about two hours away near Peace River, which is a smaller town. Um, but it was worth it to me to drive with my husband to Grand Prairie to do a physical defense and bolster numbers because it's the same exact issue here in Peace River and our small town surrounding as it is in Grand Prairie. And um, then on top of that, we're... Um, you know, my background and expertise is, and some of the other members of our group is digital organizing. So because we are in a digital area, that makes it easy for us to reach far beyond the 10 people. So some of our actions have had, um, for example, we did a physical petition that had over 4,000 people signed physically with affidavits uh, in Grand Prairie. And then we also did um, email campaigns that had thousands of people who were in some cases across the province, across the peace region. Um, we've, you know, we consider ourselves a coalition um, you know, the door is always open. There are groups who have not joined our coalition because they don't want to take these further steps of uh, actual community defense. Um, but the door is open. We would love to be working with every pride group in this area and in the BC piece. We would love to be working with, um, you know, anti-racist efforts and just continue to add to our numbers because that gives us strength. And uh, that solidarity is what gives us strength. I'm going to dig into that a little bit. So folks take issue when you say community defense. So that's when we're talking about where we advocate for people to show up anticipating protesters. You know, reading one of the articles that you sent me, it described a line of counter protesters shoulder to shoulder forming a safe exit for participants, loudly singing children's songs rather than, you know, the confrontation. Will talked about that, you know, 
is typically pictured facing off over the barricades with cops protecting the right wingers. But this sounds like exactly how Will described it, you know, a really community based solution, protective and folks take issue with that approach. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. uh, We've had uh, conflict with local um, groups. I, you know, I don't want to throw anyone under the bus or name any names, but uh, it was essentially um, at the very beginning and founding of our organization. This was the decision that we sort of made which direction we were going to go. And there's two, I think, main concerns. The first is that by paying any attention to it at all, that we spark confrontation, um, not necessarily only with police, but in general, that it would um, somehow decrease community safety. And um, we, while I can see, I think all of us can understand where that concern and fear comes from. I think we Uh, decided in this group that going forward, (laughs) not providing any counter to that kind of threat and intimidation at public events um, doesn't make us safer. In fact, the opposite. You know, we want to show that solidarity and let people know that there's there's safety. But that's the concern, right? They they think that if we give attention to the Elliot McDavid's of the world when they scream and yell at Christian Freeland or when they show up at an event, that we are somehow causing more confrontation and causing them to be violent. Um, We don't agree. But that's certainly an opinion. And then I think the other thing is, um, frankly, uh, you know, prides have donations that they don't want to threaten from within the community. We're a little um, (laughs) newer and freer. Uh, We don't we're not really beholden to that. And I think that's a conscious choice that we're all, you know, people think that we are actually paid processors, which is hilarious because we're doing this on a nothing. But that would be nice. Right. <laughs> We've all heard it. Minimum wage, though, right? <laughs> We've all heard it. But we'll take it as a as a compliment that our content and our actions were effective, that we got thousands of people involved. And um, in some of those cases, people who wouldn't necessarily be signing up for progressive causes. But um, and, and a big example of that in Grand Prairie is uh, they got rid of the RCMP. They're phasing out the RCMP for their own municipal police force. And we had grave concerns about that primarily because people's democratic voice wasn't heard. There's no plebiscite. People didn't want it. And council went ahead with it anyway. So we had people from both sides of, of um, the issue who would generally be very partisan. It is Grand Prairie in Alberta um, signing our petition, getting out and helping us with this action, taking a democratic action. So, you know, I think we're able to uh, have a broader appeal um, and uh, that, that shouldn't be discounted that we can't do that just because we're taking a stronger stance. That's interesting. You've kind of given me two examples where you're garnering community support on what could be controversial or or maybe deemed difficult to do in rural Alberta, you know, defend LGBTQ plus rights and, you know, anti-police action. I know we're talking about a democratic process, but at the root of it is is uncomfortable position with a municipal police force perhaps right and sometimes those are hot potatoes to get especially centrists to support you so that's an interesting approach like that people could know that there are ways to bring people in the fold without having to get right at it right away like they'll get there right the idea is they'll get there politically and, and ideologically but surely it's hard to argue that folks shouldn't have the right to hold events at libraries or that there should be a democratic process around something as a budgetary item as large as a police force. So those are good sells, you know, um, to kind of break that barrier and then not flying a banner of actual political banner, you know, the NDP or something partisan there again, gives you that advantage. And look, you guys are so polished. Folks don't even believe you're a grassroots organization. So, uh, it's quite impressive. Uh, your digital skills surely play into it, but I think it's your ability to connect to people and then coax them into to kind of putting them on the front line a little bit. One thing that's really impressed me is I'm like I've mentioned, I'm fairly new to leftist organizing. I came through an organization that was very proper and very Leninist. Um, And what's been very refreshing about this group um, is that people are constantly being encouraged to try things. So people be like, oh, I don't know if I can do that. But we happen to have a pool of great resources and people who can say, hey, I understand it's scary, but 
this isn't the first time people like us have done this. So there's lots of things that we can, lots of tools out there. There's lots of stories. There's lots of history that we can draw on. And that is what um, um, emboldens people to do things that I think many of us, um, you know, half a year ago, or uh, it's been longer than that, I guess, Susan. Um, but, you know, a year ago, most of us involved would never have imagined that we were doing the things we're doing. So it's taking this um, this vision of what's possible and kind of just raising it a little bit at a time. Um, and we never imagined when we started this, we thought it was just to be at the library one day on a Saturday and, and make sure crazy stuff didn't happen. And here we are. And we continually, just when the action is over, um, a new issue arises and this group comes together and discusses and plans. And I think it's not that we haven't made mistakes, but it's that we, because we have this very, very, uh, a variety of experience and um, knowledge that we're really able to help one another achieve what we've been doing. Yeah, in essence, we're sort of training each other. Um, a lot of this has been training. You know, we've been sharing resources on safety, for instance, how to safely plan um, a defense at a drag story time. Um, you know, this, we're sharing anti-fascist, essentially, resources with each other. We're sharing um, information on ideology and philosophy with each other. I think, um, you know, being Alberta, there are a lot of people who don't have that sort of experience with activism. Um, but these are issues, uh, which you correctly identified, they're sort of hot button issues in the community that a lot of people are upset about. And I think they're not, you know, this, we're in this culture war, where as soon as you're left of all right, you're considered some extreme leftist, <laughs> you know, I mean, not, not you know, and Marxism is et cetera aside, because obviously we encompass that as well. Not everybody in the organization or who's going to take part in our actions is going to be um, in, in that ideology. They might just be a fairly socially conservative person, but they're no longer having an issue with gay marriage. They don't think that it's a problem if someone wears a dress at the library and reads to their kids and they brought their kids there. And then they're upset because they see this kind of new aggression and new violence that took, takes them aback because it is a small town community. People aren't used to that. Um, and same uh, when it comes to the cop issue, you know, <laughs> it put us in the position of defending the RCMP, which is, as we know, an, uh, not exactly uh, an issue, <laughs> you know, an organization or an institution without its own geno genocidal history and systemic issues. Um, but it was because of that sense of a lack of democratic process, people wanted to get involved and wanted to know how do we get involved. And that's where we really step in is when there's this issue that has a lot of people wanting to do something, but they don't know what to do. So we're trying to come in and offer, all right, let's set up an email action. Let's set up a protest. Let's organize an event. We'll help you do it. We'll train you what you can do. And we'll be there holding your hand every step of the way to get it done. Essentially, you've created an anti-fascist network. Yeah, I think it's intentional. I think we're very aware <laughs> because we have to. I mean, this this is the thing because you're seeing this rise in fascism, and it's becoming a violent threat, especially in small town communities. These are people who are organizing hundreds of people to go and storm the county office over land use bylaws. When, they're very unclear on what they're angry about, <laughs> frankly. But um, we have to be better at using the process than they are because they are trying to stack school boards. I and mean, we've talked about this a lot that, you know, we're looking at the Take Back Alberta movement, which is intentionally using tactics and mobilizing people to take over power at every political level, including municipal. Um, and that's what we're really up against. Yeah, like out organized both on the street and through these awful institutions that are not designed for us. I know when I was talking to Will earlier and you mentioned it as well, that you got 4000 signatures, but you needed six, you know, but the odds are so stacked against you when you have to use these mechanisms. But clearly you you folks have chosen to use both. Right. The unconventional, you know, controversial tactic of community defense which is not not controversial on this show at all, for the record. But but also, you know, you're giving depositions at city council. You're doing the good old fashioned petition and you got a real mix of tactics, which is even more impressive considering how small a core 
that you and, have. And so we really, you, I have to point out, there is a hypocrisy to that. We had 4,000 people sign a petition. Certainly it didn't meet their threshold for plebiscite, but they had a handful of people come in and say, we have to save the children. And they were almost willing as the council to give them a town hall with council resources. They, there was a friendly councillor there who passed a motion. And then the, what we've been told since is, oh, if you wanted a motion, we would have done it for you too. No, we've been in front of council. There was no offer. We have 4,000 signatures and they didn't offer us a town hall when it's clearly an issue people have things to say about. So it's also exposing the hypocrisy of those systems. And um, particularly, we have 4,000 people we can prove on paper. They have a handful who gets council's attention. I was kind of grinding my teeth there when you said, you know, we have to be better at them in the processes. And I was just like, don't don't do that to yourself, Susan, because you could be right on top of it all and cross all the T's and dot all the I's and jump through all the hoops. And you know the folks working within that system for the majority are going to make it even harder for you, right? Like, so it's not, you guys are definitely surpassing them in organizational skills, but it's, if you, if you fall there, it's usually not to do with your skill or your ability to, to motivate people. It's, it's those systems that you're, you're smashing up against. So and that's I think the face that's I what, made, if you saw it. Yeah, no, and, and it is, what's difficult there is just keeping people from losing heart keeping people involved with our efforts from going, well, we did this great thing. You know, we had volunteers who were extremely disheartened that they didn't make 6,000 signatures. And we have to focus on the fact, look, we, we signed up 4,000 physical people in Grand Prairie. <laughs> in, less, <laughs> you know? in less than three weeks. <laughs> yeah. So, um, you, you know, we have to focus on that as always, uh, you know, the battle may be lost, but not the war. We're, we're constantly using these actions to build that kind of community consciousness and solidarity so in future we can mobilize even more. I mean, it's not built in a day. No, and it, it's those actions, too, that give you some profile in the press, which, you know, sounds really superficial, but it is important because you need folks to know that you're out there, right, so they can come find you and help you. Yeah, and we've absolutely been getting a press. I mean, it, uh, we have uh, Rob Butts is one of our um, organizers, and he constantly reminds us, look, not every group manages to pull as many articles as you do. <laughs> and that's true, too. And, you know, even down to this podcast, which we very much appreciate, um, because we, we have to get the word out to more people. And we have to seem credible because then other people who aren't as early adopters will want to join. Uh, I would just add that our mix of tactics is um, it was unconscious. But as we examined what was happening, it's actually an advantage to our group because what we're doing is on the one hand, we're exposing the the hypocrisy of our par our Canadian parliamentary system. Um, and we're saying, and, and it's visible to people, hey, we did all the things that you're supposed to do and they still shut us down, right? So it's obviously not about the issue itself. It's just that they wanted to do it anyway. They didn't care. Um, and then on the other hand, in terms of community defense, that's that... Um, a solidarity building that the community can also see and say, those are people who care and those are people who are doing something. They might not agree with us right now, but it will give them food for thought um, and it will give them uh, a pause and they will say to themselves, why, why is it that there is a defense at the library? What, what are they defending against? And then they read, somebody pulled the fire alarm, somebody else mused late, later on the right wing side that it would have been good if there had been a gun present. Um, you know, these kinds of things are the things that we're defending against. So it's not an imagined threat at that point. It's a very real and material thing. And so we're bringing what usually is discussed in the, the level of philosophy, ideology, science, whatever. Um, and we're actually making it material in our community in a way that people can actually see, oh, I thought that was just stuff that happened at university. I didn't realize that people actually cared. And in particular, I think in Grand Prairie, it, to be visible in that way is powerful as well. If you, I mean, this is our argument against the idea that this causes more conflict and, um, than it helps solve. If you're a trans person in Grand Prairie right now, it's very easy to feel alone. It's very easy to feel like nobody's going to step up for you. Nobody's going to have your back. Nobody's going to be there for you in the event that someone is violent or tries to hate crime you. Um, so we, we have spoken with a lot of people 
that feel, I mean, I personally, the reason I'm involved in this group is sometimes I'm scared um, of the people in my community and how, and their vitriol and how quick they are to anger, um, how gung-ho they are about, you know, tactics that I think are terrorism. Um, and having seen this sort of change where people who have been ra radicalized, who weren't radical before, into this sort of alt-right philosophy, who are willing to put their money where their mouth is at this point, um, it gives me a great sense of um, safety to have a community that I can rely on. And I, I know other people feel the same. If, if nobody was stepping up, guess what? It seems like these are these are the majority opinion. These are normal people, and that what they're doing has no one opposing it. I mean, that's scary. That sends people leaving the community because they don't feel safe. I just want to equate that to something on a smaller scale that I've experienced. It obviously doesn't equate to standing on the line while you know, right-wingers are spewing their hatred. And I just want the audience to have some context. Yes, a fire alarm was pulled, but like pure hatred was being spouted at participants in front of children before all of that, you know, and I don't know what people expect community members to do other than to form a protective barrier because the police completely allow this behavior to happen. You almost require a physical altercation and even then, quite often it just goes completely unchecked. So the defense need is there, but you often get the same critique when you're online and someone posts up something completely inflammatory and you go into the comment section saying like, this is a, this is trash. This is racist. This is hateful, you know, and you come back at them with facts, with vitriol, whatever quite often you'll find cr critics saying, why do you engage? You're not going to convince them of anything. But, you know, you folks aren't forming those protective lines to convince those fucking right wingers that they're wrong. That's beyond your duty at that point. And you're there to make sure that community members who cannot come out, that that resistance is enough to keep them home, right? Because to, to rightfully fear for their safety they know people are defending them and it's the same in the comment section it's so awful when you see posts or comments or you know any leader making statements that go unchallenged in that way on mass people start to think you we all agree with it how do you know everyone doesn't agree i see six likes and no comments right so does everyone feel this way? I can only imagine that's what it's like. So sometimes like, I understand we're not going to change the people. We're not there to provide evidence that they are wrong, right? That the theories that they put forth are nothing but hate. You're there for something else. And sometimes it's not even the physical defense of the people that have attended the event, right? It's that beacon that to both sides, right? To the right-wingers that this shit will not stand, you will be challenged physically if needed, right? And to the other community members that you're there for them, that other people are there for them. Lots, as many as possible, right? So those numbers are important. Um, you gave a lot of grace to the people who had trouble with your tactics there, but I think they need to find courage if they're listening. Well, we would agree with that. Yeah. I mean, I understand. I mean, I'm in Peace River. Part of the reason I joined this is because I spoke out against Arthur Pulowski came through. He has a really strong uh, ally who's from Peace River named Bob Leone, who's been spreading COVID misinformation and has now gone into spreading misinformation about kitty litter boxes and, you know, why gender isn't uh, diverse, et cetera, et cetera. And essentially just, you know, been radicalized into hate. They had a meeting here in Peace River. Um, I spoke out against that and immediately branded a satanic, you know, <laughs> warlord or whatever, you know, anti, you know, a boogeyman. Um, so it's difficult because you do face a lot of um, this attempt to make you a pariah. At this point, they will call you the most, uh, the nastiest names because now they're using this whole groomer pedophile thing to go after anybody who disagrees, right? Who dares to stand up. Um, but, you know, that's where I can use my allyship. Um, I'm a bisexual woman. I'm not trans. I'm married. I'm cis passing. I'm white. Um, I have some advantages where I feel more comfortable and safe to speak out. I have experience doing it um, for people who maybe aren't ready or safe to do that. Um, but those people are in my DMs saying, you're so brave. You know, why did you do that? Um, because I feel comfortable to do that. 
but you know, it's still brave of them to exist <laughs> in our communities, to not give up. It's still extremely brave. Uh, everybody has to just sort of come from where they're at. I guess that's why I give people a lot of grace because just because they're not ready for these tactics yet doesn't mean I, I, I always have faith that people can learn. Maybe I'm wrong, but I like to believe they can and um, that they can try new tactics over time or maybe in time they'll come around and see what we're doing. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's unprecedented times maybe uh, that we haven't seen in some time. So <laughs> it's time for maybe different, more forward tactics is where we're at. And Will, I'm sure you've got lots to say too. Yeah, I, I guess my approach to organizing is I always expect the best of people. Um, and then when they prove me wrong, Susan's, Susan and I have both seen people, you know, that we thought we could count on. And then for whatever reason, no judgment, they, they decided they couldn't do this or that. And that's fine. You're not ready for it. Then you're not ready for it. Um, our purpose isn't to shame people or tell them do better. Um, our purpose is to shine a spotlight on um, racism, um, uh, you know, uh, homophobia, transphobia, all these forms of hatred that the right wing is using to divide um, regular working Canadians, um, one from another, um, to destroy our communities, really, um, to keep us from talking to one another, to keep us from talking about our, our shared experience, our, our experience of economic problems, um, that are common to all of us. Um, and the right wing is very skillful at using all these different forms of hate to divide us. Um, and, and I, I have confidence that demonstrating solidarity, um, when the chips are down, people will come over. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know exactly where that confidence comes from because members of the group have asked me to explain that before. And I'm like, I don't know. I just feel like if people are given all the facts and if people are given an opportunity to participate at whatever level they're comfortable with, I think people surprise, surprise you a lot. Um, and people can rise to your, to the expectations of the moment. Um, in surprising ways, like we never imagined that at pulling off a successful defense in Grand Prairie would even be possible, but it happened. Um, we never thought that we could do that a second time, um, and that happened. We never thought that we would be before city council advocating for the library, um, advocating for the democratic process in regards to the police um, changing changes in the city. And we never thought we would be doing any of those things. And it was just because we encouraged each other and we expected that we would be able to rise to the challenge. Um, as a group, it wasn't any one of us that was, you know, better or more bold. Some of us took point positions in various actions, um, but it was very much a shared, I don't, I don't know if it was necessarily described, you couldn't describe it as democratic, but it was organic. Um, and it just happened to be like coming together of, of every ingredient we needed to accomplish that in the moment. Why don't why do you describe it as organic and not democratic? Well, it's uh, so de democracy is consensus. Um, consensus means compromise. But I never felt when we were discussing our actions that we would talk until we agreed on what we were going to do. And there were occasions where people were like, I, I can't commit to that. And, and the group was like, no, we understand. You can't commit to that. That's fine. Um, but it never was uh, like in our modern democracy, someone always loses. And usually both sides lose. Um, but in this case, it was very much we had these full-on conversations that could sometimes last days on end. Um, and they're happening, you know, online in private messages, but we, we never allowed division to happen among us. We were like, you know, I understand you disagree with me and can we talk about that more? Um, and then we would push through that and try to figure out like, why do you feel like that? How is that a hang up or a roadblock for you? What can we do to help you with that? And, 
Um, so it was organic in the sense of, I think that's how human communities are supposed to operate. Um, and that's why I hesitate to call it democratic in the way that our society uses that word. Okay. Okay. See, there you go. That's what I, that's the asterisk I think I was looking for because what you described was incredibly democratic. Democracy is just the rule of the people of the masses, right? And not of the few of the many. Um, and consensus building is key, right? I want to just organizer to organizer, you are building consensus by allowing people to opt out, right? You know, if they take serious offense with your tactics, they wouldn't be with you. But not being ready to take that step is different. Saying, I'll be online while you're on the front line is still working with you. But you are, that's what helps build consensus by allowing people to kind of figure out their own next move within that same organization. So I just felt like you were shorting yourself again a little bit, but that's incredible what you described in that kind of, because you will bring people along like that. And back to the courage comment, uh, we had someone on here, Bruno, from York Southwestern Tenant Union. And we one of the questions was, how do you get tenants to strike against their landlords? Like, how do you get them to think that that'll be successful? How do you get them to find that courage to to go beyond griping about something and taking an incredibly bold step. He reminded us that a strike was not the first step, but the last. But he, but the point on courage was examples. Even just coming to meetings and having an example of someone winning against the landlord at the tenant board, right? Or just other examples of historical rent strikes started to give people the courage that they needed. And then once they had one victory under their belt or one, you know, they haven't won their rent strike, but you know what victories look like. Sometimes they're small. Sometimes they are 4,000 signatures when you needed six. And that that's where they'll get more courage and more courage and more courage. So everything you're doing is building courage. I think you've unlocked it already. Maybe just don't know it yet. <laughs> well, and, and that's where that, you know, this is such an individualistic society that really encourages individualism. And in a lot of ways, you know, it, that's the focus, right? Is whether the individual has courage. I have more courage when I'm standing next to Will, when I'm standing next to five other people who are cheering and waving flags. That gives me courage. It's not coming from me particularly in my individual self. It's coming from being part of something and something that I believe in. Um, and then, yeah, there's a positive reinforcement there. You know, we're standing doing this defense with the convoyers across the street in Grand Prairie and way more people are honking for us, way more people are waving at us. Those people, it might have been a huge thing for somebody driving a big truck in Grand Prairie to just honk and give us a thumbs up. That may have been their first step for all we know. Um, you know, but again, it's seeing that example. There's people out there on the street waving rainbow flags and having a dance party. I can wave too. Maybe I can you know, be out with my family. Like there, there's just, there's maybe this town isn't all controlled by hateful bigots, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, yeah, that's the example. And, uh, you know, we're in an interesting time in the labor movement. This is, there's a massive boom in, and people actually, uh, stepping up and unionizing right now. The labor movement is having an unprecedented moment. And again, it's because it's necessary. I think just so many people are at their breaking point, whether it's dealing with hate, whether it's dealing with conspiracy theories or, uh, COVID, uh, or whether it's dealing with just labor conditions and the fact that we're all being drained dry and not given better wages, um, people are stepping up because they feel their back is against the wall. And I think you're going to only see more of that. As long as they're given positive outlets, because, right, we're seeing folks go either way when their backs are against the wall. And when that convoy looks appealing with its hot tubs and its barbecues and it, you know, that type of organizing can be effective if in the wrong hands. So. And the sense of solidarity there. They have, I mean, the biggest thing you'll hear from them is this is my community. There's so much love here. Uh, when, you, when you're a, a trans person, you don't see love coming from the convoy, right? But you're not part of that in-group. Um, it's creating that out-group and they're, that strengthens their bonds. So a lot of those people, and much, you know, that sort of cult-like thinking where you break all the bonds with your family and friends. Now all you have is the cult. That's your entire identity. 
Your entire identity is that you're a mega Albertan. Your entire identity is that you're a freedom fighter. Your entire identity is that you're Conway. We're absolutely trying to offer solidarity that is not that. <laughs> you don't need to be, you know, brainwashed by Q to join. We kind of are trying to find the rational people who go, whoa, this is scary. My neighbor's acting weird and saying stuff they wouldn't have said a year ago. What do I do? Who do I talk to about this and how do I stop it? And that's a lot more people than you'd think. Because, Will, you were saying from outside Alberta, we all have a vision of what Alberta is, especially politically, because the people that make the most noise are getting the most press and it's not good. Right. And even though it was the Ottawa convoy, we know a lot of them came from Alberta. <laughs> and so and they're here. get a bad rap. But I'm on the phone with Will and we're chatting and he's assuring me. And, and I know you're right, because we've had other people from Alberta on the show who've said the same thing, that there is a great progressive streak through the, the populace, but it's not always the safest place to express that. I myself have been in a very conservative riding of Ontario. Confederate flags are common. And so when you go door to door with on progressive issues or, you know, for the NDP, then you know, it's when you finally find progressive and they go, oh, my gosh, I didn't know there was anybody else <laughs> in this neighborhood who thought like that. Are you a communist? You know, and, and <laughs> their eyes kind of light up rather than with disdain. And all of a sudden it was like, do you guys got a club? Like, is there somewhere we can meet and talk? And it's you just got to create these spaces because they are there. And so you want to talk a little bit about pulling that progressiveness out of the woodwork. I, and uh, Will, I know you gave me a quote earlier. We, you can touch on that. Why there isn't so obvious, why it isn't so obvious to the rest of Canada that there's so many progressives in Alberta. You know, you mentioned some leadership lacking. Do you have any other theories on, you know, why we hear a lot more about those convoyers than we do about community defenders? Yeah, I think in Alberta, we have red roots um, going back into the 1910s, 20s, and 30s. When red, United do Farm you mean liberal or do you mean no, socialist? I mean, I mean socialist. Thank you. <laughs> um, to, to be very clear, yeah, socialist. Um, the United Farmers of Alberta um, was a union of farmers. Um, farmers organized into locals and eventually um, formed two governments in succession. Those governments um, form the basis for our current... Um, uh, system of highways, um, uh, our township roads and rural roads um, were formed during that period. Um, uh, various forms of transportation, um, public transportation, were, it was a very progressive time in Alberta. But with the defeat of um, the UFA government shortly before the Second World War, um, during the Depression, um, there was some poor leadership in the party. And, and after that, we've had um, government after government formed essentially by the oil, oil barons. Um, those um, with the increase in oil production in, in Alberta after World War II, um, the interests of the government of Alberta shifted. It went from this farming focus and that the farming focus really enabled the UFA, the United Farmers of Alberta, to to take power and to actually do progressive things on behalf of the population. But after World War II, with this increase of need for oil and, and gas, um, Alberta's economy really shifted from farming and forestry to the oil field. Um, and so the need of the government in Alberta was to defend the gains of that industry um, of capitalists who invested, mostly American capitalists, um, and and to really crush any any form of, I guess you could call it nationalization, provincialization of the oil field um, on behalf of um, Albertans, those resources belong to the peoples of Alberta, number one, to the indigenous peoples, and secondarily, to, to the workers of Alberta, that is who these resources belong to. Um, and what these politicians successively have done over the years is really convince us as a population that what's good for the oil field is good for us. 
Um, but now we are experiencing automation in the oil field, layoffs after layoffs, um, reductions in wages, reductions in benefits, reductions in all kinds of perks that used to be available in the oil field. Um, and Albertans are really starting to question like, okay, so is what's good for the oil field really what's good for me? To the point that a lot of Albertans don't even agree with Rachel Notley on the NDP's current platform in regards to oil in Alberta. Um, and so uh, what that speaks to is, I think, a lack of um, a lack of vision, but it was a lack of experience because we didn't have any progressive movements after the UFA in Alberta. Um, that's not to exclude the efforts of NDP organizers and, and candidates. Um, but sadly, the the efforts of the NDP and even winning in 2015, um, we, we as NDP members really saw really quickly how um, notly whether she wanted to or not was forced to make these compromises with the oil field. Um, and we thought it was going to be, you know, the, the golden age of Alberta come again. Um, but these these corporate interests have this massive influence and they control the media. They control now the provincial government um, in very real and evident ways. Daniel Smith can't say a dang thing without the open consent of <laughs> the oil barons in Calgary. And that's just painfully evident. Um, and so I think Albertans are coming awake to the fact that our resources were stolen. Um, first, those indigenous resources in terms of indigenous justice um, were stolen from indigenous populations during the period of colonization. And now the, the work and effort of Alberta workers for 80 years has been essentially stolen by these corporate interests. And Albertans are starting to say, well, why is it so hard? Like, if you guys are making billions of dollars, why can't I pay my rent? Why is it hard to pay my mortgage? Why can't I feed my kids? Why is food bank usage going up in Alberta? We're supposed to be, you know, the land of plenty in Canada. We're not anymore. Um, and so when you can approach an Albertan with that that sort of, um, hey, this this we worked on this. We built all this. You know, it isn't some CEO sitting in a tower in Calgary that built anything that's out here in the oil field or in our farms or in our communities. They didn't do any of it. It's all us. We built it. And people become very agitated because Albertans have a very strong work ethic. And <laughs> they, they're like, somebody took something from me. I, and then they realize that their um, personal struggle isn't their own. That they can they can look across at their coworker, across at their neighbor, and say, "All of us are being exploited. All of us are being stolen from," um, and that really riles people up because they've been told for years, "Hey, it's uh, the Alberta advantage. Come to Alberta. You'll be you'll be better off than anywhere else in Canada." It's not true anymore. Um, people are moving to Calgary and finding out there's no jobs. Uh, you know, uh, even though Alberta still has ads in Toronto, in the subway station, come to Alberta, we've got work. There is no work in places like Calgary. So people are showing up by thousands to Alberta and discovering the advantage is gone. Um, in, in many cases, the work is gone. Um, and so it's just tapping into it might be basic instinct or survival. But sadly, that's what humans usually need to change their mind. <laughs> I wish it was different. I wish we could be logical and, you know, didn't have to experience pain before we change our mind. But that is Susan's right. Like people are feeling the crunch. They're feeling these things personally. They're feeling the hatred. That's my cousin you're talking about. That's my auntie. That's my uncle. You don't you can't say those things about them. Hey, that's my coworker you just fired. Um, you know, I didn't get a cost of living allowance. Now I can't feed my kids. All of these are common experiences and they're, they're the points around which communities should and can be organized. Yeah, but as you said, Jessa, the problem with that is that it can very easily be uh, used uh, as a way to uh, get people to reinforce what capital wants, which is divide us by giving them a scapegoat. Well, it's those weird, evil trans people. Well, it's Justin Trudeau. He's the reason for all of your woes. Oh, it, it, you know, it's it's that weird BLM, and uh, you know, it's it's the Marxists coming from the UN. I mean, this is why we have. They all think it's some weird UN 
WEF conspiracy and, you know, because they've been given somebody to blame. And unfortunately, in times of insecurity, and that's what we're really talking about is people who are struggling to deal with change. We've had a lot of rapid change and we're continuing to have rapid change. We were just surrounded by wildfires in this province. Um, and uh, <laughs> it's still very difficult to get people to acknowledge climate change because that's a very scary thing to acknowledge because it's out of their control. What they want is control. And in some cases, they want someone to just bring them back to how things used to be in this idealized time, you know, when the oil money was flowing, <laughs> when it was boom times and they could afford their boat and their house and did not worry. Um, so that is the, the, I think the reason Alberta is particularly vulnerable because you have so many people who made their careers in the oil field who have lost that position or they feel that position slipping away and uh, they feel insecure. And those people who feel insecure are too often being given this scapegoat, um, which really has nothing to do with their problems. And I'm sure that that serves the people in power. I'm sure that that serves capital. I'm sure there's big money behind these talking points because who does it serve? It serves the oil companies. It, ser it serves the big corporations who don't want us to unionize, you know? And it you know, scapegoat. yeah, and the newest scapegoat in the LGBTQ, not that they haven't been a scapegoat for many, many years in face, but this increase in hatred that even the cops are acknowledging is 100% to coalesce around right wing politicians who send out the dog whistles or worse. So it's it's a power grab. And yeah, they're using moral panic at the moment, like they have done many, many times before. And I know it is sad. And it's so depressing when I say this, especially to folks who don't organize because I don't think they want to hear it but it has to get worse before it'll get better and it's so critical that there are networks no matter how small that can pull people into the right direction that can radicalize them the right way I know we don't think we're radicals they do so that's fine but really you know it's a class war and a lot of these right-wingers are part of the working class they're just working against their class interests at the moment, but it is a war and we do need to make sure we recruit people as awful as that sounds. But I mean, I'm grateful for networks like yours. When I read about it, I understood it was a small group and that was just actually what made it so important to have you folks come on and talk about how much you can do or how many people you can reach with very little resources but that same feeling we all have that like this shit should not be happening. What can I do about it? You know, and then how can I get the people? How can I not go to that library by myself? You know, because uh, courage, courage is actually not an absence of fear. It's a perseverance through fear. Right. So it's always nicer if you can hold someone's hand when you have to go up against the unknown and, and you know, a fire alarm and, and, and bad words are manageable to a degree, but there's always that possibility that we talked about. And I'm just going to touch on briefly here. I It's it's a bigger discussion. Maybe we can chime in before we run out of time, but I, I want to acknowledge that there's a lot of Marxists out there. I'm a, I'm a socialist. I, I read Marx. I don't like labels, but whatever. Um, However, we all know that there exists a large portion of Marxists who almost absolutely refuse to engage in what they call identity politics. So I don't even like using that term because it seems like it comes loaded. We're talking about like intersectionality and they feel that any time spent on those lines, that that community defense is detracting from the working class discussion and I think you guys have already explained why that work is important, but I just want to make sure we challenge that notion that it isn't our duty to make sure all marginalized groups are not attacked in this way. You know, how you divide your resources, and I understand you got to triage what you can do, but it's absolutely imperative that anti-fascists, that socialists, that leftists are on the front lines against this anti-trans bullshit that is happening, not just at libraries. Um, and so absolutely appreciate the work that you're doing. And I'm sure, you know, you've heard that critique perhaps from the left, like Will's nodding its head, but yeah. Have you pushed, have you had to push back against that and kind of 
underscore the importance of highlighting the isms, the other isms, not just capitalism, but racism. And we just didn't want to like crush allies, right? Like we, we can't crush allies. We want allies. That was what it became was, you know, we want allies as well to feel safe, to be involved. And, you know, as I'm not a Marxist, um, but I think, you know, uh, capital and uh, our class structure thrives because of white supremacy, because it's built on racism and oppression. Those are not accidental. Those are functions of the system. So I don't think you can ignore those things, you know, to go, you know, sort of just um, a separate point. But you, you can't ignore racism if you're going to fight the structure and systems that we are living in. It's just it's just you're going to fail because you're not um, paying attention to the entire problem. Racism is a key part of how we keep this class, you know, separation. That's that's just part of uh, how it was built. You know, police are the way they are because they were there getting rid of our indigenous people. That's built and baked into the system at this point. If we don't address that issue and if we're not intersectional and we're missing out on um, a really big part of the picture and we won't be effective either um, is my personal feeling. But, uh, you know, we, we try very much to prioritize diverse voices. But if it's a question where we can't find somebody who if it checks all the boxes to go speak to council, we're going to get who we can to go speak to council. And maybe that's not always the person we wish could be our front-facing person, but it's the person who's available. You know, we're going to incorporate as much diversity into the organization and into our decisions as possible, because otherwise we're missing a key part of what we're trying to do. If we don't listen to someone who's experienced um, oppression, guess what? We're not going to be an effective defense, but we also need to get things done. And, uh, you know, leftists can end up bickering and arguing <laughs> and dividing themselves very easily. So I think that's just we're trying to resist that. And we're trying to avoid saying you're not enough of an oppressed person to be an ally and be part of the action is really what it comes down to. I understand. I understand what you guys are trying to say there. OK, so before we go, do you folks have anything in the works that you'd like to share with the audience? Any calls to action, how they can help you join? just get in touch with us. We'll get into the discord. Um, yeah, we need, we need people. We need bodies to keep uh, building and preparing for the next action. Okay. So that's if they're in peace country. Yeah. What, what about folks coast to coast? I think reaching out to us, like if this is something you're interested in doing yourself, we, we do consider ourselves at the disposal of other people who want to participate or, or create their own organization. And of course, you can't just, you know, copy and paste because we're kind of forged in, in a particular fire, um, <laughs> so to speak. Um, but we, we have um, tips um, and we have experiences and stories to share and encouragement to give. And, um, and we want, if Canada could have one of these organizations in every city, um, in every town, um, some some organization that stands against hate and um, stands for the marginalized, for the oppressed. Um, unions already take care of the working class. That's their job. Um, they do it poorly. <laughs> and we'll have to have a different crew of people dealing with that. But in this particular situation, we need active organizations to be out there doing hopefully better work we we just want this to be a thing that communities do for themselves um we don't want to come into your community and run it we we want this to be your thing if this is what you want to do um and we enjoy um talking about our experiences um and we learn from them all the time like our debriefs are kind of brutal sometimes we're like this really sucked and it's like what what could we do next time right but a lot of times things happen that you're not prepared for um but you can prepare for most things so um getting getting good advice like we had rob involved um we had susan we had dustin you know like a, a whole range of people who've had experience in in different political actions and and campaigns um to draw on and it doesn't take much. It really doesn't. I think in many small communities, you could do this with two, three, four people and be very effective. Yeah, it's very decentralized. And we've learned from other people. Obviously, there were drag defenses across the country. We didn't invent the idea 
We didn't, we, we talked to other groups and said, how are you doing this? How are you being safe? What are your recommendations? What have you learned? And then we tried to take that and put it into practice. So I think the beauty of it is that it is decentralized. Uh, we have, you know, it's not a huge Facebook page, but please do feel free. Anybody who wants to talk to us to get in touch with us there. If you're in the peace country, absolutely want you to follow us so that we can get you mobilized. Um, there, I mean, Alberta moves quickly. There's there's a couple of ongoing issues. I think the police issue will remain an ongoing issue. Um, we have also responded to council's vote about uh, just about supporting the convoyers uh, who wanted to have a save the children town halls. So we expect there's going to be a convoy action from them this fall uh, once school kicks back in gear. In a lot of ways, we're we're defensive, so we may be re responding to what. Um, what they're doing and i don't want to say any like super concrete plans because get involved with the group and we'll we'll bring you in on the actions we have to be safe too about what we're doing right so and some of that is anonymity <laughs> a lot of our members are not front facing i completely understand and as we always do we'll share links to your organization and to your facebook through the show notes so if you're listening you want to get in touch with them make sure you check the show notes for every show but I appreciate you folks taking the time to come on and kind of give us the rundown on what you do and why you do it. I hope it is. Repl I know it is already replicated in many, many, many communities, but we also know that there's still a lot of people out there that are still at that griping on the Internet stage, knowing that something is wrong and not knowing where they can help. And so I hope you've helped them and will continue to. Thank you so much. May I just say. Yeah, yeah, it's extremely yeah. hopeful, right? Like you, if you feel dis desperate and sad and down, taking an action is hopeful. You find hope and joy in life again that, hey, there's a chance things could change. And and that's what it gave it gives to most of us who are involved is just hope. We could all use more of that. Thank you so much, Will and Susan. That is a wrap on another episode of Blueprints of Disruption. Thank you for joining us. Also, a very big thank you to the producer of our show, Santiago Halu Quintero. Blueprints of Disruption is an independent production operated cooperatively. You can follow us on Twitter at BP of Disruption. If you'd like to help us continue disrupting the status quo, please share our content. And if you have the means, consider becoming a patron. Not only does our support come from the progressive community, so does our content. So reach out to us and let us know what or who we should be amplifying. So until next time, keep disrupting.